Always, already, Welcome to Always Already Podcast. I'm Rachel Brown, and I'm here with... B and John. Rachel, we are really, really happy to have you back. Yay! Oh, really? Thanks, guys. I mean, our special guest co-hosts were awesome and all, but, you know, those people can turn off the podcast for 12 seconds. We're really happy to have you back, Rachel. I'm so you're, happy to You're number back. one in our hearts and minds and affects. It's Aww. about time. Oh, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about time. Um... So on that note, <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, blushing a little. We're here with some mac and cheese and some white wine. Yep. Uh, to discuss terrorist assemblages, homo nationalism, and queer times by Jasbir K. Puar. I'm really excited to be talking about this. Right, and we're uh, this is a request from you, the listenership, from Katie H. So Katie, thank you for requesting uh, this book that I think we all have had some engagement with before, um, and I've. I really enjoy talking about it every time. Um, so we're talking about the introduction, and then we're also talking about uh, Chapter 2 on Abu Ghraib and U.S. sexual exceptionalism. So we're going to have, uh, before we really get going in the discussion, a few-minute summary from B of the text. I thought you were going to say a few minutes of silence. We really can do that, too. Very performative. All the time. So today we're examining uh, Jasper Poir's book, or specifically two chapters out of it, uh, from Terrorist Assemblages, Homo Nationalism, and Queer Times. And um, more broadly looking at how liberal uh, ideas of subjectivity, uh, the ways in which empire um, and the spread of empire, and thus the spread of, of liberalism, um, has created, um, and as the title is in itself suggestive, uh, homo nationalism. Not to be confused too much with uh, Lisa Dugan's um, word on homo normativity, but it is nearly the same in the sense that homo nationalism describes a process by which um, certain kinds of queer bodies, really certain kinds of ways of being gay and lesbian, um, if not trans, uh, but really sexualities. Um, is incorporated um, into the fold of uh, public or national life. We think about it more simply um, as the means by which the state is recognizing or making legible uh, ways of being um, and in doing so authorizing those ways of being that hitherto had been really unrecognizable, if not uh, outlawed. Um, Here we might think, um, of the case of Lawrence v. Texas in 2003. And Poirot's book is examining really um, a kind of post-9-11 uh, benchmark, in, as, as, or at least as an historical benchmark. 9-11 is the moment in which um, casting or recasting um, an orientalized other, um, Muslim bodies, um, as within these assemblages 
of an ideology of terrorism, uh, an ideology of liberalism, um, and, and simultaneously ideologies related to sexuality, um, has created um, certain kinds of recognizable forms of, again, of being. Um, that contribution in itself to both cultural studies to queer studies um, proper um, places Poir's book as kind of a classic at this point, um, and we treat it as such uh, in the podcast itself. She's looking at how also in the construction of these kinds of bodies, what's circulating in the sense of uh, everything from affect, um, be it, and as we will see and have an interesting um, you know, dialogue about it, um, what affect means in a material sense. Uh, what is sticking in one way or another to certain kinds of bodies and not others through institutions of legal um, or one should say uh, juridical um, import and the kinds of language that circulates within legal conceptions of the subject, political discourses on it, and the like. We are particularly interested in examining the concept of liberal subjectivity as how is it that these certain kinds of, of queers, right, or certain um, gay and lesbian populations, and if we think about also here in 2014, um, and we look in the news, certain kinds of trans bodies as well, are now being accepted as a part of daily public life, um, and measured up through uh, the lens of freedom and equality, right? Um, one is free to work um, through non-discrimination acts, one is no longer um, or can no longer be arrested via sodomy laws. Uh, one is now free to marry uh, in multiple states. Right? Uh, the Defense of Marriage Act has been um, all but dismantled and declared unconstitutional as such. And so um, these sort of white conceptions of being is on the ascendance. And I think that's one extremely important aspect of this work is the ascendancy of whiteness, right? The ascendancy of whiteness in the sense that what liberal subjectivity really is, is um, equality to the white cisgender upper-class male in that sense um, as the subject to which we are being held and others are being held uh, equal, supposedly, right? We all want to be like this particular kind of subject. I think as such... Um, Poir is analyzing the ways in which um, this particular conceptualization is doing work in not only its own racialized ways here and or domestically, but abroad. Right? What in what ways now is empire very much alive and well in the construction of others and in the construction of certain kinds of uh, really, if if we want to borrow um, some frames from. Um, Judith Butler's own work, disposability. Disposable bodies that um, are subjected to certain kinds of discursive, epistemic, and physical violence. And her chapter on Abu Ghraib uh, highlights this very perfectly, in that we deploy a kind of heterosexuality and heteronorms um, against uh, populations that we immediately subsume through this kind of pink-washed uh, lens um, via again, homonationalism, that these are homophobic populations. And thus we use what we believe is to be, uh, um, and by we, 
um, empire, one uh, might sort of use as a metonymy, uh, we are then deploying the subversive sexuality against them. Um, and by looking past the actual violence committed uh, by these acts, um, whether it be the writing or inscribing of the word fag on a bomb that's being dropped in Afghanistan or Iraq, um, to uh, allowing uh, service people um, to photograph, and thus those photographs going viral, the placement of prisoners deemed terrorists or suspected of terrorism um, in these sexually compromising um, situations, looking past those um, to the extent that, well, these bodies, as it were, these people in the cultural otherness um, of empire uh, can be subjected to it. And with that, I believe Poire makes um, such important contributions to um, the ways in which we ought to be rethinking and recasting. Even um, in 2014, that book is resonating with discourses um, now related to, um, for instance, the uh, Israel uh, and, and Gaza conflict um, the ways in which we construct otherness through recourse to this idea of homonationalism is very much alive, and uh, we are extremely excited um, to uh, break this and deconstruct this work further, and we all hope that you enjoy. So I thought maybe we'd start by just talking about the overall project that Puar is engaging in. And I, one way that I was thinking about it and she talks about this to some extent in the introduction, is thinking about the multiple connections between queerness and empire, and U.S. empire in particular, in ways that aren't particularly theorized. I mean, we get some of it, I guess, in, you know, talk of, like, Morganson on settler colonialism or something like that. But, I mean, Poirot seems to me to be one of the central figures to think about um, queerness and empire. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think... Throughout the text, she brings up Foucault's The History of Sexuality, which I think is really useful, talking about how post-colonial theorists will analyze it in one way and queer theorists will analyze it, kind of spending most of the time refuting the repression hypothesis, but that there's not necessarily an attempt, even in Butler, if I understand her yeah. correctly, to bring those together in a new way. And um, I think in between those two, something that Poire uses and something I think is it's a beautiful way of putting it, is the scotoma, I believe, um, of two different um, theoretical perspectives or a partial loss of vision as a result of theorizing between those two and not mm -hmm. thinking about sexualities, queerness, etc., and ways and creating blind spots as a result. So, Yeah. yeah. No, mm -hmm. I think that's really useful. Mm -hmm. And so part of her, in the introduction, by way of, discussing her project sets up a lot of this, what she means by terms like homonationalism um, and interrogating more deeply the connections between queerness and liberalism. And then she goes in various chapters into what you could consider maybe more case studies. That's not necessarily quite the right term, but looking at Abu Ghraib, for example, and how exceptionalism and sexual exceptionalism work to um, not extend, but move alongside and as part of the project of empire. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I like, even in the introduction, she, you know, she starts by doing what, you know, a number of theorists have done, right? Playing off of the multiple different 
meanings or connotations of exceptionalism, right? Hart and Agree talk about it, Agamben talk about it, but obviously, you know, Hart and Agree to a very, very tiny bit, Agamben not at all, you know, aren't ever going to connect that to queerness or aren't ever going to connect that to sexuality, um, which I think is one of the very cool things of this book, which is now like kind of, you know, it's no longer a new book per se, or right? A classic as it yeah, were. It's, yeah, it's, you know, it's become a classic. It's, you know, become some sort of kind of queer canon. Yeah, I want to actually just pull back a little bit sure. and ask, you know, just for general um, edification, the term uh, homonationalism, for example, and um, liberal subjectivity and these types of things that are obviously part and parcel of our argument, let's explore that a little bit more. I mean, what is homonationalism, as it were? Right? Yeah, I mean, I think for her, and please add as is necessary. There's a lot of different examples she uses, but um, it's the idea of the nationalist project, whether that's the state or by extension of that empire or projects abroad in Iraq, Afghanistan, folding into its uh, realm of acceptability, um, queer folks and um, homosexuals to kind of um, bastion itself as a, as a um, progressive, liberal, tolerant. Right. Yeah, tolerance as being like the central kind of concept right. within it. But see, this is my problem is I wonder the extent to which we're defining queer, or at least Poire is defining queer. In, in, in a broad hmm. sense, is she defining queer as being gender nonconforming? Hmm. As it were, pre-9-11 gender non-conforming folks were experiencing as much, if not more, violence as it were uh, before, uh, after uh, 9-11, um, if we're using this as sort of the, you know, kind of a, a post in the sand. And so what queerness is being comprised within this concept of homonationalism? I mean, that's a good question, right? Because it's some, you know, and this is, I mean, something that happens in a number of different queer texts or queer theory texts that sometimes gets disaggregated and ex explicated and sometimes not, right? Sometimes in, in this book, it seems to me that queer is referring essentially to all non-straight people, right? At other yeah. times, it seems to me that queer has, you know, the uh, anti-normative sort of connotation, um, Sometimes it seems to me it's just kind of like a, you know, and she's critical of this mode, but of queerness is like a catch-all category for all that is transgressive and seeks mm -hmm. to kind of um, say that it's just outside of normativity or something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes queer seems to mean um, all non-LGB people. There's just a lot of different meanings of queer uh, floating around throughout the text. But I want to... Just to get a basis, I'm going to read from yeah. um, what, how she talks about, the, how she first introduces the term homonationalism. Sure. This is on page two. At work in this dynamic is a form of sexual exceptionalism, the emergence of national homosexuality, what I term homonationalism, that corresponds with the coming out of the exceptionalism of American empire. Further, this brand of homosexuality operates as a regulatory script not only of normative gayness, queerness, or homosexuality, but also of the racial and national norms that reinforce these sexual subjects. Yeah. So even there, queer means different things in even in the course of those couple sentences, right? But the homonationalism term, you know, maybe it slips at other points, right? But it seems to me to, you know, talk to the, speak of the LG, of the LGBTQ mm -hmm. And it's interesting. I, I like her, her wording that corresponds with the coming out of the exceptionalism of American empire, 
right when these particular projects are coming to a fore in 9-11, that's precisely when she um, feels it's most necessary to interrogate this connection between empire and race and uh, sexuality. Right, so sure. these, oh, sorry. No, go, go. No. So these sexualities, these yeah. certain kinds of identities are, you know, seen as kind of paramount within, you know, a conversation regarding sexuality. Right? Yeah, so. and I think her project in this is also perhaps looking at queernesses and the mm-hmm. n- number of queernesses there are not just, you know, white secular queerness. In mm-hmm. fact, it's trying to bring into light all the queernesses that don't fit into that paradigm, which is considered the acceptable queerness. I mean, I also like, you know, Rachel, you point out that the verb corresponds to, which I think is a really interesting verb to use in that particular section. Um, And I think it's really, I like it because, right, she's not arguing necessarily that there's like this direct causality um, or, you know, Mm -hmm. even necessarily, you know, consciously directed behavior. Like, you know, there was some, you know, queer mafia that was like, all right, now's the time that we get together and like now we can become part of the nation and be included or be enfolded in the nation or whatever, right? That's not what happened, right? You know, there are various, you know, tendencies, processes, et cetera, right, that co-act together Mm -hmm. to create this correspondence, right? And she articulates what a lot of these relations and processes and connections are throughout the book. Yeah, I think that's great. And I actually think that what's, interesting is this notion of pinkwashing is obviously Mm. now much, much bigger than the book itself. Um, you know, there's conferences on it and you hear a lot talk discussions about Israel and Palestine when it comes to pinkwashing for, for good reason. Um, but sometimes I think that gets obscured when it's talk, when there's discussion of pinkwashing and how that operates in various, um, conflicts or various states that are oppressing other people that are not acceptably homosexual um, or the right form of homosexual, let's say. the correct liberal democracy is gauged by how we treat our gay folks, our lesbian Mm -hmm. folks, our queer folks, as it were. Yeah, but but I think so that's kind of what I was getting at is this idea that um, in pinkwashing, um, it sometimes obscures what you're saying, John, the way in which sometimes it might in fact be an active policy, an active spin an active PR campaign and other times it's more insidious than that I think mm-hmm. and I think that maybe there should be more theorizing of that in general well, I think that's right I mean I, when you think about what followed 9-11 and I think you know when you think about what what happens during war and I there was this image I'm just recalling of a bomb and uh, on, inscribed on the bomb was you know, take this, you fags, I Something think. Something like that. Something yeah. along those lines. What she talks about in the book. Yeah. What are you, where is this bomb? What are you uh, so it was a bomb, and I believe it was uh, in Afghanistan, um, mm-hmm. that was being dropped. And all the LGB groups were just taken aback by the fact that, you know, they were writing, the military was writing, um, you know, take this, you fags, or whatever. But not actually discussing the fact that mm-hmm. they were dropping a damn bomb on people. Right. Exactly. Right. right. We no, were engaged so in true. war and imperialism, but we weren't. But we were more obsessed with the fact that the terminology written and inscribed upon the bomb was something problematic. Or that the problematic, you know, inscription on this bomb was not then further connected to be like, <laughs> you know, it's just because, like, you know, fine, it, it is. It definitely is like offensive to queer or LGBTQ sure. folks. Absolutely, but. 
you can't stop there and just say that, right? right. It's, it's a not, bomb, it's, though. It's, it's about, like, it's, it's, it's the, you know, the, these vi- this violence against, discursive violence against um, LGBT people has this, you know, further, it's tied, it's literally tied, it's inscribed on a, like, instrument of militarism, right? right? And that doesn't enter the frame. Mm-hmm. To use a butlerian. Term. Well, you know, to enter the frame of war, as it were. Uh, but yeah, you have for surprise, the first, that's one where very I went. like clear instance in which you have a discursive quality meeting a material quality that enters into mass violence, mass violence, and the and the thing that is brought up as problematic is not so much the violence, but rather how it's inscribed upon the instrument of that violence, mm-hmm. and it just it. You know, I, it goes along and very well. And they're both well. violent. They're right, both they're violent. both violent, right? Um, you know, and not to, you know, play some kind of, you know, Olympic game between the two, but rather to say that if we were to focus on one and not the other, um, that this plays into, you know, at least one one thing that I, I see as, right, homonationalism, right? Absolutely, um, so right? I mean, we you know, we can't let, you know, one violence of, you know, written suck on this fag or whatever. Yeah, that, I or think whatever. it was along those lines. Yeah. Um, on the bomb, like, make illegible the violence of the bomb being dropped and killing people, right? We can't yes. let these various ones form of violence, like, make the other kind of violence illegible, right? That's homonational. That's one, you know, particularly, I think, stark example. I think one thing that that brings up is, given the limitations of our of of the media and of social networking and Twitter and all these news feeds that we get, which are really conducive to sound biting everything in the world, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and I'm not saying it's inevitable, thank God, but like, how do you ensure that both of those get tied in when people just want one quick chewable, swallowable, one, two, three bullet point, this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. No, I don't know either. Um, I, I think it's a really good question. Um, and maybe it speaks more broadly to the fact that, you know, our our social consciousness is so constrained by the ways in which media mm. have been presenting information in these mm. short bit ways, right? And that, yeah. you know, it, it speaks to a, and this is getting off topic, but I think it probably speaks to a larger problem um, with relation to how our public sphere is dwindling, Um a public sphere that, you know, perhaps... Look, I'm not going Habermas. I, 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 I saw the smirk. I saw the smirk. I saw the smirk. Yes. Deep Eat some da- more mac and cheese. <laughs> sorry, not it's, sorry. It's, it's the mac and cheese. I'm sorry, folks. It brings up the Habermas. He's eating the grossest pieces of it, too. Like, those, like, corner pieces. Look, I'm saying there is a dwindling public sphere. I think that the public sphere... You know, whether it be in the United States, if we're talking about the West, whatever that means, I'm using scare quotes here, but... Um, how I conceive of the public sphere is something that is shrinking. We we have. What do you mean by public sphere? I, I mean ways, <laughs> the ways in which we communicate in in. Um, oh Lord, I feel as though the attack is do almost. It. It's, it's coming. I'll, I'll, I'll let, let it, it go. I feel it. I want to pass. Okay, you let it pass. The ways in which we articulate truth claims and in which those truth claims are then um, either opposed, attacked you know, presented, contested, right? And those, the ways in which we uh, engage with each other, right, have been, it seems, restricted to, and I say restricted because I believe that online or virtual methods of communication, and I'm not discounting the fact that we are, in fact, uh, engaging in virtual communication. Love you guys. Love you guys. Um, Everyone (laughs) out there, love you. 
Uh, but all that, three of you out there, all three of you who are listening. Um, but that for the we, record, I'd like mom. to know that there are a lot more than three subscribers. Three hundred. We have three hundred people, and I love all of you. Um, but I will say that you know, in the larger scheme of things, we we don't engage with each other in this capacity of you know, broadly speaking, uh, this capacity of physical interaction, and I think that that has some kind of uh, yeah. that has an effect on the ways that we communicate larger, you know, conceptual issues, yeah. um, how we engage in discourse. If we're talking about issues related to poir, if we're, if we're going to break those down, right, it's difficult to do so already. Um, you know, it's not so difficult, I should say, to do something like that on the Internet, right, to post something online like Facebook or a blog that we have, and we engage people who like what we do. But if you were to do this in person on the street, and talk about homonationalism or talk about terrorist assemblages and the like. I think you're more hard pressed because you have to pull back so many more times and talk about these conceptual tools. True. I mean, you know, I've tried to teach Puar, right? Both parts of this text. Yeah. I've also tried to teach her article with Amit Rai, uh, Monster Terrorist Fag, right? Which is hard to and do. I, and I think that this is, I, I don't want to discount this because we're all teachers here. I mean, we all engage with students. And so we have these physical interactions, but those physical interactions are on the basis of a, a classroom, right? Yeah. So they're structured in a way in mm-hmm. which there is a kind of hierarchy. Absolutely. Right? Now, what if that hierarchy is diminished in which we are actually just engaged in conversation on the street, right? About these things which Poir, I believe, you know, Poir is making absolutely important points, right? I might not get all of them. And look, listeners, this is maybe the second time I've read this book and in parts, and Rachel and John are much more versed in this than I am. But I think that, you know, the ways in which we are engaged in these types of things, right, are, are at challenge. They are challenged, I should say. And so that's the last Habermasian perspective that I'm going to throw out there. But I doubt that. I think Probably that- not. <laughs> I think it relates to her discussion of internet and affect, actually, in the chapter on Abu Ghraib, where she's talking about U.S. sexual exceptionalism and the specific photos that are chosen to be shown via the internet, and um, how, in a sense, the internet is not some kind of separate hyper-reality or less-than-real place. It's a very real place wherein um, these subjects are performed into being, in a sense. Um, and what I mean by that is she actually, I think she uses that term at some point, talking about how the victim body or the tortured body, she talks about the tortured Muslim body that becomes such precisely through the, pro- the profligation of um, these pictures of torture, mm-hmm. that it's not some kind of a priori body that's tortured, but it becomes that. And the Internet succinctly enables that she uses these althusserian um metaphors throughout the book i noticed um you know hailing into being and the like right hailing through interpolation and ideology and the like and so and i i'm not look i'm not minimizing the impact of the internet by any means and suggesting that the virtual somehow is not real or does not have an impact on the ways that we conceive of things or our consciousness but I, you know, it, it, it is in some way uh, conducive to what you were suggesting earlier. Our minds are attuned to these sort of soundbite, you know, mechanisms of information. Yeah. Um, 
images that flash across the screen on our computers, um, and Abu Ghraib being one of them, um, in which you have a few images, right? And you can imagine these images appearing on your Facebook news feed, Ugh. right? Yeah. Um, and you might scroll through them if you do. And I probably wouldn't even, I'd, I'd probably unfollow the friend who put them, you know, on my news feed. In the, well, not unfollow, but nevertheless, hide them um, or whatever the nuanced language is on Facebook. But these things are, are you know, in such a way, they do have the impact of, of affecting our consciousness. And I don't want to limit the material consequences of that. Yeah. Um, and I just want to make sure that that's out there. I just, I have a, you know, a, a distinct feeling that these ways of conceptualizing are problematic. And I think Poirot probably would agree to a certain extent that that's problematic, right? How we hail these subjects into being, as it were. And at the same time, you know, make other sorts of subjects illegible, right? You know, she says, you know, in the haunting, like, you know, I'll go with haunting. She talks about it in different contexts. Like, haunting all these images are the people taking the pictures, mm-hmm. the people sh- that initially share the pictures mm-hmm. that they eventually get out, you know, not to mention the, like, haptic connections of, um, sorry, you're about to hear a bunch of <laughs> wine glass pouring, oh, so, wine pouring into wine glass. So everyone in out there, in it, our, our listenership, um, Rachel and I are sharing glasses of wine. It is her first day back, and so we figured we might celebrate. Um, and uh, back to John. <laughs> <laughs> Let that be the justification. Exactly. <laughs> it's a um, celebration, guys. So that, you know, like, so that it's, uh, that one of the interesting things about, like, the circulation of images or something is also that, you know, what is made illegible, mm-hmm. even though it's, you know, the haunting, like, absent presence or something like that, um, that kind of continually gets reinstantiated. Right and reproduce. What do you so, mean by that? Like reinstantiate. So like each time, yeah. you know, if like we, if there was, you know, to be a, you know, you know, presumably it's happened and it hasn't come out, but like some sort of, you know, new torture scandal or whatever at some U.S. detention facility, right? And we had a bunch of new images similar to those of Abu Ghraib that yeah. were being circulated around our Facebook feeds tomorrow or something, right? Every time that it gets shared. It reproduces, you know, the, 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 you know, the material effects on the tortured body. Mm-hmm. It reproduces the, you know, continually reproduces at very high speeds, right? And speed is another interesting thing to think about here. Yes. Um, and, and, yeah, and reproduces, you know, the, perf- the constitution of the tortured body. It pre- reproduces the constitution of certain um, norms or certain beliefs or certain expectations or certain stereotypes of the Muslim or the Muslim male or Muslim sexuality or whatever. But at the same time, it reproduces that absent presence of the person taking the photo mm-hmm. or the military or prison contractor who has some, you know, transferred the photo from one place to another so that it can eventually show up on our news feed. What's this? Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just thinking as you were saying this and I got goosebumps is that behind the picture is empire. Yeah. Right. Behind the picture is the image really of empire taking those images, transferring them out into the, you know, the virtual public sphere for our, you know, viewing displeasure and then simultaneously creating an image in which, you know, the Muslim male being tortured or the Muslim female, as it were, um, in this, you know, it reinstantiates. And I think I'm following John on this, uh, reinstantiates this notion of we need to help. Or we need to enter into, we need to save, know, save as it were, that empire is the only way. It's, it's interesting is that 
I can't, I'm trying to remember a, a particular reading in which I read Empire is dead, but it's not dead, right? Empire is very much alive, right? And through, um, through means that are not necessarily technical and institutional um, as we refer to them as empire, but empire is alive in the sense that its spirit might be very much alive, yeah. right? Its spirit is alive in the sense that if people are taking pictures of these prisoners, right, or people are taking pictures, people, right, quote, people, military uh, uh, folks, service people are doing these things, representing the gaze of the empire, right? And you know, I think reinforcing this image of someone overseas needing help or being defenseless, but then simultaneously taking advantage of the fact that a form of torture would be sexually abusing or putting them into sexually, uh, you know, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Compromising? Compromising. That's even an understatement, the way the Abergrave pictures came out. Uh, but compromising, I think, would suit the situation, um, sexually compromising moments, um, kind of creates an image where, uh, you know, it's, it's the helpless Muslim, right? It's the helpless foreigner. And I think it's important that she points out, it's also very much based upon a kind of essentialist orientalist reading of Muslim sexuality singular mm-hmm. in that it yeah. sort of assumes there's yes. a singular Muslim sexuality, yeah, first of all, that, but talking about, you know, the, yeah. um, Oh, the reason that this is so bad is because, you know, in Muslim society, it's so shameful to be gay and sort of like the way that scholars and reporters alike have kind of like taken up that line of thinking as the reason why Abu Ghraib is so torturous, as if it's not torturous for all the other things that it's happening and as if there's a a Muslim sexuality (sighs) that explains away the torture. Just one more thing, right? It's like it's this notion similar to... Uh, well, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps right now. Uh, similar to, because I'm making all these connections, right? It's similar synapses. to... Synapses. Yeah, synapses are firing right now. Similar to writing fag on a bomb. We pay more attention to the fact that these people are being placed into these you know, sexually compromising positions as a result of military service people, but we're forgetting the fact that, in fact, they are being held and detained and yeah. put into you know, prisons. Right, um, and it's, so it's it's detracting from the bigger picture. Exactly, it's again the way that some violences get played up so as to make other violences illegible. But yes. I think it's and, worse than that. I think it's that there's no attempt at trying that there might not even be an awareness on the part of the reporter, the government, whatever that it's so as to right. like it's like as if the other violence doesn't exist. Period. Yes, right. including the you know as Poir points out in the text in a few different places. Right, that there's, you know, maybe we should think about the fact that these guards that, you know, committed various abuses at Abu Ghraib got their start in the U.S. prison system, right? That these techniques are used in the U.S. prison (laughs) system to torture prisoners. Why do we have a prison system? (laughs) Well, I mean, that's a, that's a, you know, I think that we should probably incorporate a reading of that later on, right? Prison abolition. Duly um, noted. Dean Spade or Angela Davis. There we go. So, Reader, listen, not readers, listeners. <laughs> listeners. Uh, listeners, if you have a 
particular prison abolition text that you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, you should email us by podcast at gmail.com. So I want to go back to our discussion. Um, yeah, bring us I've on become track, way John. too good. Sorry, <laughs> I've become way too good at like quickly jabbing in like self promotion and doing it and like without even thinking. Um, I'm not sure I'm happy with and myself. Always for already. Podcasts are gone. So I want to go back to our discussion of like the circulation of images and affect and stuff. So I'm reading from like page 104, um, and it goes across a couple images to page so to page 107 of Puar. Okay. The word stimulating pinpoints affect is a limit of representation. These photos matter beyond what one can see in them. Suggestive of haptic space is a way of seeing that is distinct from optical space, which renegotiates the tactile through the optical. The eye itself may fulfill this non-optical function such that one can feel touch through vision. Okay. And this is the, the sentence I really think is amazing. This is the collapsing of production and consumption, image and viewer onto the same vectors, the same planes. There is no inside or outside here. There are only movement, circulation, contingent temporalities, momentary associations, and disassociations. Yeah, it's so true. I know, I think that that sort of encapsulates what you're saying, be about the physical. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say the physical is more real than the virtual, but simply that it can be chosen and spliced and... Um, made a ghost by omission very easily. What's circulating, though? I want to make sure that we just sort of take a step back because the ways in which she's using words, however beautiful um, and, and eloquent, I'm not <laughs> exactly certain You know what she's saying is circulating in these moments, right? What is circulating in these moments when we Lots look at things, these images, right? right? I want it, So is she using, because you know, it's reminiscent of the way we talked about Ahmed, right? Um, what sticks or the stickiness of certain kinds of... Uh, of, Actually, of, she uses that yeah, word. Right. She, she does. Yeah, she it's in the introduction. She uses uh, stickiness um, quite a bit in the way that Ahmed um, uses uh, stickiness. It's like, so what's sticking when we see, as it were, when we see these images and in the circulation of... That's of, a really, of, really right? good question because... I, oh, sorry. Go for it. No. You found the quote. So oh, yeah. I found the quote. I got really excited. That's okay, so page what I'm about to five... Say. She says, exceptionalism gestures to narratives of excellence, excellent nationalism, a process whereby a national population comes to believe in its own superiority and its own singularity, stuck, as Sarah Ahmed would say, to various subjects. So I think in the circulation, it's the image circulating, it's the sign or the object in this form of the image, but what it's doing is um, performatively creating the very subject it's supposed to portray in that picture, and then also... Um, sticking to it, this idea that it's um, exceptional. Yeah, because right. It's, Which is, and, and again, it goes back, that's really interesting, and it also goes back to B's earlier point, because it's not just a question of what sticks, but it's a question of what doesn't stick, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's what, you know, what bodies get stuck or saturated, you know, with these sticky signs, whether it's, you know, the Orientalist singular um, essentialist reading of Muslim sexuality or, you know, whether it's the violences that don't stick or the, you know, practices or processes of empire that don't stick. One of the issues that I had early on, and I felt like Poir was doing this, and maybe this is just sidetracking, is that 
I feel like she took Ahmed to task for for treating affect and especially stickiness as being too much too much within the the, the signification area, like too linguistic. And so I feel like, am I right in saying that Poir is attempting to rematerialize affect in such a way as to say, hey, it's a combination of the material and the 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 signification, the signifier, right? Well, because Ahmed is right. I so, think Ahmed sees it as pretty material. Well, it, well, to me, yeah, it, but I'm with Rachel. All right. As well. well, I read Ahmed as, and I read Poir's, you know short criticism in the preface and, and um, in the introduction of Ahmed as as being um, almost entirely a, a signification, right? What circulates in a, in a, or in an affective economy is, you know, not just feeling, but words, words that stick, words that produce certain kinds of bodily, yes, states that produce certain kinds of material um, effect, but nevertheless, the root of them would be, you know, signification. It would be the signifier. It would be a series of words. Hmm. Um, and so it seems to me that Poir is adding on to that, maybe um, a sense that bodies matter, right? You know, no Butlerian analogy there, but, you know, that bodies matter, that, you know, the visualization of the body in addition to signification matters, and that it seems to be a, a halfway point. I don't know, mm. because it seems on the one hand, Poir, and I, I'm just trying to gain clarification here, Poir is using Masumi, right? using Deleuze and Guattari, um, which I still believe that we should probably read Masumi at, at some point. Sure. Right? Um, write that down, John. Uh, <laughs> so uh, she's after using... After prison abolition. Uh, after prison abolition. Uh, she's using these, these figures. Uh, she's also using Ahmed. Um, and it seems that on the one hand, you have Masumi, who talks about affect in this very body-oriented way. Perception, nerves, synapses, right? This is my, my reading of him, mm-hmm. if I even remotely understand Masumi. Um, and then Ahmed, who from our other previous podcast, it seems to me has a linguistic turn on affect. And although, although uh, look, I will say, I'm just, I'm defending my, my stance. I know that you two are, are you can pounce. <laughs> I'm just saying that Ahmed, you know, in the, in the chapters we read, I, I picked up on a particularly, you know, uh, you know, cultural word oriented or linguistically turned affective reading. And it seems that Poir is bringing these authors together hmm. in a way. I, I see what you mean. No, I do see yeah, you what you go, mean. You pounce first, Rachel. Or pounce first. <laughs> no, so, they're, they're physically pouncing on me as we speak. If only we had video of our podcast. Right. We're not pouncing so much as co- coaxing. Coaxing me into correct thinking. Gently. Speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, you missed a couple choice moments here. <laughs> back. Ready to pounce on me. There's lots of tension <laughs> yeah, in this weird zone. I mean... Cut. All because I all because I said a few things about Ahmed that's apparently wrong, but well, I'm about to be corrected. They're mo- mostly the thing. Lucky for you, B. Most of the wrong things were said while the mics were off. Uh huh. But Rachel, you I wanted to go first. Two hundred out of three hundred people I out f- there agree with B. <laughs> anyway, go ahead, Rachel. I I feel where you're coming from because she does talk about words a lot, but I actually don't think she's talking about words in a linguistic discourse analysis way so much as she's talking about words themselves as material and as objects 
to be analyzed, objects that circulate. So in other words, um, she's not talking about it in like a Butler way of, um, I'm avoiding saying Butlerian note, um, that talks about, um, about language forming the subject itself and conjuring mm -hmm. into reality the subject. She's talking about words as imprinting upon the subject for sure, but not in the same way as a discourse analysis. That's, that's what I wanted to get at. And in that sense, she's not quite doing something that's, you know, in the realm of the linguistic, despite that she's talking about words, because I think she's talking about words themselves as real and almost material. But I do think that she does kind of connect um, Masumi and Ahmed in that, in the conclusion she talks about Masumi's idea of not being bound to a fixed gridlock of time and space. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is crucial. And, you know, maybe I can't articulate it yet, but you're right, she is doing something slightly different than Ahmed. And absolutely. I would agree with that. It's just that I think I disagree with her reading of Ahmed. Okay, so, so... I mean, this is from a chapter that we didn't read for the podcast, but that is also in the book. So this is page one. To be clear, he's pouncing on Puar, not B. No, I'd rather... Both, apparently. In <laughs> Ahmed's usage, <laughs> affect, however usefully deployed, remains within the realm of signification. Signification, narrative, and epistemological coherence, known or unknown, is what subtends and mediates the stickiness or slipperiness of objects. And I think that that is just... I just would disagree with that reading of Ahmed, and that I would agree with Rachel in the sense that, yeah, sure, Ahmed talks a lot about signification, but the signification is embodied <coughs> and material and is ontological in some ways, and that in, that it's we can't just think of it as discursive, or we can't think of it as signification in, like, I don't know, a Saussurian sense or in, like, a structural linguistic sense. I don't think that even Ahmed would go the route of suggesting, and no, even no. Poir, I, I, think I, don't, I don't think Poir is suggesting that Ahmed is taking a Saussurian... No, I, I agree, I agree. She's saying it subtends in a sense that the way that we understood it or the way that we epistemologically discern uh, affect is that it, 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 it is beyond, it is not within, but then it inhabits bodies. So it is external to the ontological reality, or, or that seems... Are we talking very, about Puar or Ahmed here? Ahmed. Okay. Uh, but it's, it's Puar's, uh, you know, forgive me, Poir, if you're listening in, I love you. I saw you at uh, an SRLP. <laughs> I, 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 I saw you at an SRLP event, and I love you so much. Um, but I'm about to I'm about to agree with you. So just just listen up. Um, because it's you're Poir, obviously listening. Because you're an amazing person. But Poir is saying of Ahmed, um, you know, this is how we how we visual, or at least how we conceptualize um, affect is that, and the way Ahmed does is that is external to the body, right? It is an economy that is not possessed by any singular body, but seems to circulate outside of bodies. It's neither it manifests, internal but here, nor external. But, see, but right. that's the thing. So <laughs> if it, but it's neither internal nor external. Is that it? It's neither so psychic it's simultaneous. nor social. So, the, so, yeah. So the way that Ahmed talks about it in cultural politics of emotion, I'm particularly thinking of the chapter on pain where she talks about the way that the circulation of emotions is part of what constitutes the boundary internal-external. Yeah, but The very so, distinction between internal-external is affectively social created, or, or social-psychic. Yeah, but how we learn, or at least the, the epistemology behind that seems to me to be bound up with signification. It's not bound up with the body. 
It's not bound up necessarily and simultaneously with the body. I it's not is. manifest in it. The, it, it seems like the, the ontology, about it, it seems it like is. the ontology of affect is still nevertheless a, a linguistic quality. No. It's a cultural quality. It's something that goes beyond, it is outside of the body. It is not something that is manifest within it. And I think that what Puar is attempting to do is take Ahmed's Look, if Poir is misreading Ahmed, let's get Poir and Ahmed on the show and have some conversation. <laughs> right? That's a great but it seems yeah, it's a perfect idea. But it seems to me that Poir's on the money. It seems that Ahmed is reading affect as being symbolic. It exists within a kind of Lacanian symbolic sphere. Whoa, 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 it, whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> I'm sorry, I really just brought Lacan, but I'm 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 gonna say it. All right, All right I believe that Ahmed's um, version of affect exists within a signification realm. I believe that Masumi and his version of affect exists within a certain kind of uh, synaptic, if not like purely, you know, sensory sphere. And that Poir is a mediation between these two. And maybe I'm misreading, and I'm assuming that you two agree that I'm misreading, uh, that, that what Poir is doing is bringing the two together. I think, though, maybe that's conflating... Ahmed's way of talking about affect in a, in a more abstract term, in more abstract terms with materiality versus language. Yeah, yeah but I think that you're like constructing some really problematic binaries, which is not a thing you usually do. So I'm no, surprised to see this. Oh, <laughs> okay. Okay. I will say, I will say the following thing is that before, in, we, in, in, before, before, you know, how, first, how dare you suggest that I'm creating binaries. Second, yes, I was kind of creating a binary. I apologize. <laughs> just one. Just, just, a, just, least a, just, just a couple. Eight. Okay. Um, I am saying that what Ahmed is doing, look, if I'm if I'm thinking through this logic, if something exists external to the body and then is manifest within the body, if it is not internal nor external, at some point you're suggesting you're or at least Ahmed is suggesting it's simultaneous that it's no, external and external. I think you are the way that you're trying to like weirdly put bounds <laughs> on what the body is is I think. A, not what Ahmed is doing. B, not what Masumi is doing. C, not what Puar is doing. <laughs> oh, and D, I, I, I Wait, think I it's something that... Wait, I need to give me a hug. I think it's something that's... Like, it's just... I'm, I think that in your critique of Ahmed, or your reading of Ahmed, that you're relying on distinctions that she is herself critiquing, mm -hmm. and that you yourself are usually part of critiquing. Well, I usually take the body as being an autonomous entity on the part of, and I use autonomy very loosely, sure. but an autonomous entity within the possessive realm of the subject. The subject may or may not be constructed in these senses, which, okay. you know, if we're using, you know, Butler, Poire, and others, um, that in fact, what exists external to and internal to the body. <laughs> Right. 
I know. John's no, face I'm, is like, I'm I can't, laugh, even, I'm I can't even look at I'm John's laugh, face. I'm not, actually, I'm not smirking at you. No, I'm smirking at the fact that our discussion of Puar has now turned into a, like, running on a 15 minute long argument about affect. Yeah, well, I mean, but, but this, this discussion, it bears discussing, I think, that, uh, to a certain extent. Because that's never happened in real life. Right, audience. right, of course. We've never had hour plus long discussions <laughs> yeah, no, no, about affect course. in real life. We promise. I, I find it, no, I find it highly problematic Ooh. that we're not conceptualizing the body in such a way that you know, at least gives possession to the subject in question. Sure, is that, but isn't if there still on. a porosity to that body? Isn't not, that body still porous? It may be porous. Wait, what's funny are we talking about? Puar or Ahmed? No, I, no, just, I I'm, I'm just saying just that I think, we're just, I think we're just arguing about the body. We go back to Mahmoud, right? Mahmoud, at least, you know, in that sense, the way that we were conceptualizing the body and agency... Right. And this is where this dangerous concept of agency comes up is that within the conceptualizations of both Ahmed and others. Right. The first time we encountered agency that gave, you know, even relational agency to the subject was Mahmoud. Right. There was no. I'm gonna, we're, we're, we're in my apartment. I'm going to go walk away and get Ahmed and start quoting some Ahmed. <laughs> I will return to <laughs> I Just I, FYI, I have to leave in like 45 minutes, so we should keep this moving. All right. So my my big feeling here is that you know, if we're conceptualizing bodies, we have to conceptualize them in such a way that at least distributes to the subject in possession of that body. Something of agency. He's going to go footnote from note four on a page 110. I know he is. I'm, I'm certain, <laughs> right? Keep going. It's the so footnote. I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to, like, I'm, I'm attempting to draw a, you know, a, some kind of agential line to the subject, their body, and the ways in which a lot of, uh, you know, culturally inclined thinkers tend to, um, you know, you know, tend to innervate those subjects of so, agents. I think Ahmed, I take your point, and I think Ahmed actually, you think it's too close? Um, too close, John? Okay. Sorry, I'm having some microphone um, perception issues. So I think Ahmed actually does um, give some space for agency. Um, she talks about Look, I'm not saying that Ahmed is sapping agency. I'm suggesting. Yeah, I'm just kind of unclear, like who the what the critique is against here, because I I think that you're not critiquing Ahmed. You're critiquing some sort of like specter of something else. Well, actually, what I'm suggesting <laughs> is that what Poir is doing is bringing together two probably distinct thinkers, which is your critique of me, which is that I'm creating a binary, but I don't believe that Masumi <laughs> and Ahmed are exactly complementary in their treatments of affect. I think what Poir is doing is creating a mediating line between the two thinkers. I actually, you know... And why I, is that problematic? I think you're onto something, B, because... That's not what I'm saying is problematic. So that, that, that was my original assertion is that what Poir is doing is drawing a mediation. Now, you're taking issue with my perspective on what bodies represent. To bring us back onto track, I do think that I, I don't necessarily think that um, she's doing something that's only... Oh, oh whoa, whoa. <laughs> Getting in trouble here. Um, I don't think she's necessarily only in the realm of signification. I definitely disagree with you about that. I do think she's bringing... You're disagreeing with Poir. With... with with B. Altman, 
um, channeling well, what I'm saying Puar. Is that you're, you're, you're disagreeing with how Puar is reading Ahmed. Yeah, yeah, no. Okay, great. So, but I do think that, the, that she is bringing, you're right, she is bringing Masumi and Ahmed together in another way, which is that if Masumi is all about the agency of matter in a way, or matter having energy and sort of the very physical, the very material, and Ahmed is discussing more things like um, the way in which meaning sticks mm-hmm. based upon this materiality. Puar, in, in one sense, is bringing them together in that she's talking about something like stickiness and the ways in which the subjects, the very boundaries of who subjects are, are created by um, the circulation of different kind of concepts, such as um, Muslim tortured body. Yes. <laughs> Rachel and B have generously agreed to let me have the last word on this particular issue. Um, I mean, I look, I am one of the first, and I've written about this, and I am writing about this in my dissertation. There are very, very distinct differences between Masumi and Ahmed. There's no question. Poir does, I think, a very interesting job, especially in the, uh, the Turban is Not a Hat chapter of the book, in thinking about ways we can connect um, Ahmed, Masumi and Butler together, and she does a brilliant reading, and she throws in some Deleuze and Guattari in there, particularly on assemblage, and that's all excellent. I'm just saying, first of all, that I disagree. I think I disagree with Puar's reading of Ahmed, and second of all, I think that the the way that you've taken up Puar's critique of Ahmed is not actually engaging Ahmed's text enough. Okay, and we can agree to disagree there, I will. and we'll read some more Ahmed later on, and for another episode, and we can return to this argument. I can't wait. Me neither. So one of the other things we wanted to talk about about Poir in particular was the way she's talking about the secular queer, the way she's talking about um, kind of the oftentimes um, hidden or less easily uh, legible connections between queerness and a certain kind of liberal subjectivity or liberal autonomy in the way that, you know, I think this is really, really interesting and I think that it's a important um, corrective to certain forms of thinking or acting about queerness, you know, she critiques the notion that, you know, queer is what is automatically transgressive, it is the most transgressive, it is that which is beyond norms, right? Mm -hmm. And she says that that sort of belief, which is also tied up to certain you know, racialized notions of queerness, where queerness queerness gets associated with whiteness at the expense of uh, race and people of color, that these sort of things, you know, work to center a certain notion of queerness, right, where it becomes this sort of ultra-liberal, ultra-agential, hyper-autonomous subject. I think she does a really nice job. You know, she starts to do it in the in the introduction, but she does it throughout the text as well. And she does a really nice job of talking about that. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, can we, let's explain secular queer. Sure. Like in this idea of what secular queerness uh, entails or subtends. Sure. Right? Um, to a certain extent, I believe that, um, you know, she's on point. If we're using, again, like post 9-11, um, ways of conceptualizing the nation, what's happening, right, within the LGB and LGBT, um, and I use T in like a kind of a parenthesis because it's hardly ever really Absolutely. incorporated, right? Um, but in the LGB movement, right, 2003, Lawrence v. Texas, we got, you know, the end of sodomy laws. We have a constant fight for, um, you know, uh, quote, you know, 
queer rights, as it were, but gay and lesbian rights in the sense of uh, workplace non-discrimination, uh, liberal rights in the sense of I want to get married and thus be recognized by the state. And thus we have this sense of being gay and lesbian is a part of the norm. Being gay and lesbian and queer is a part of this ongoing, almost, and this is what we were talking about earlier, you know, before the segment, in a kind of patriotic way. I am a part of the nation. I am a part of this thing, right? Um, and that we are at war. Oh, well, I am a part of the nation that is at war, and everything's great. Even though this is the same population that had been, and, you know, maybe I'm taking a liberal read here, you know, and I'm using that term loosely too, uh, that uh, you know, this is the same population that had been, in essence, at war with the state for 30 years, sure. right? And so, thirty, well, 30 or 40, but I'm saying, like, within an institutional, you know, kind of language, had been at war with the state. And so we have this new manifestation of what it means to be, you know, what Lisa Dugan had, had described as as, he, as, as homonorm, uh, homonormative, we have here, you know, this homonational quality, which I find so compelling. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. But I think it's also, it's beyond simply talking about homosexual bodies. Like it really is. I mean, that's one facet of something much larger, which is like, it's in some ways, it's almost like a stop valve sort of thing. Like let's give a subtle outlet for dissonance, for deviance, for, um, you know, not falling totally into the concept as it exists on paper of the ideal citizen subject at large, and we will save our own asses. And we can then enfold that subject back into our projects of empire, put them in the yes. service of, you know, imperial processes and violences or whatever. And we can use them as a gauge um, by which we look at, you know, so-called foreign cultures and say, how do you treat your gays? How do you treat your lesbians? Oh, we treat them so well. We've we've actually dispensed with sodomy laws. What about you? You know, we've we've dispensed with, um, you know, anti-gay marriage statutes. Well, we're in the midst of that fight. How about, how about you? you? Right. Which so, takes on a particular salience in you know, the Middle East writ large, absolutely. or you know, as part of details throughout the book, right? Particularly directed at Islam, so that Islam is seen as uniquely and singularly, singularly and paradigmatically homophobic or anti-gay or whatever, and it's it's always already that, right? And thus requiring our intervention, exactly. right? Victims needing our help, right. and also at the same time. You know, creating the atmosphere in which those photos of Abu Ghraib can emerge, right? Creating an atmosphere, right? I suppose now I'm starting to comprehend this economy that Poir is, you know, discussing. The, the idea that what is circulating here is the notion that what sticks now is this entirely homophobic, you know, culture in which now we can say, right, we can... We can torture these people by, by virtue of something as basic as sexuality that we here in the United States are so, you know, quite liberal about, right? So I'm going to read a quote, and this ties together some of these concerns, I think. Um, this is on page 13. Resolutely secular, unforgiving in its understanding of irrational, illogical, senseless religion, faith, or spirituality as the downfall of any rational politics. This is... Poir talking about what she calls queer secularity. 
Queer secularity demands a particular transgression of norms, religious norms that are understood to otherwise bind the subject to an especially egregious, interdictory religious frame. The queer agential subject can only ever be fathomed outside the norming constrictions of religion, conflating agency and resistance, right? So that... No kidding. Um, right? So the queerness, it gets put beyond normativity in general, right? It, it's made as, you know, irretrievably secular so that there can, oh, there can only be secularism for there to be queerness. And this takes, again, takes on particular effects used against and used as a form of violence and justification of violence towards towards brown people, right? And I think that's also, it's about co-opting queerness, not only for empire, but specifically for secularism, which relates in a broader sense to liberalism and to Western Enlightenment notions of ration and reason. And so as much as people want to think that, as much as, honestly, I find this at grad center sometimes. I'm going to say that for the record. Like, as much as it's about pushing back on Western Enlightenment notions of atomistic individualism and this and that, there's a certain poo-pooing of religiosity, of faith-based things that... um, that sort of assume that it's backwards or wayward. And even the, 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 this container of God means many, many, many things. Many things. Right. It doesn't mean, I think it's sort of taken to mean like bearded dude in the sky and very few people see it just as that, yeah. that are professedly religious. And simultaneously that bearded dude um, is dude, right? Male, bearded, uh, be- bearded white dude uh, who, you know, extols heteronormative values. And I think that in many instances, what, you know, Poir is attempting to do is deconstruct those ways of thinking. And and so rethink um, those images that we're going to see day by day. And I think this is hugely problematic, not for Poir, but, you know, on, you know, I, I reference Facebook is that I see every single day, some kind of image coming from the quote, Middle East in which I see either fundamentalism, quote, fundamentalism, Muslims committing, quote, committing atrocities, and it's always used as an excuse to say, this, this is Islam. These are Muslims. These are extremists, right? But those extremists fit within this kind of economy of all those folks are extremists. All must believe these kinds of tenets. And I think that Rachel's precisely right, and maybe we can wrap up the conversation here. Sure. But I think Rachel's precisely right to think about the connection here between queerness and secularism and liberalism. Um, and the, and the poor does this, right? So to read another quote from her, this is page 15. Queer secularity is, con- is constitutive of and constituted by the queer autonomous liberal subject. Right, so it's this queer autonomous liberal subject that is perhaps we might say uniquely positioned or uniquely constituted or uniquely acting to be enfolded into empire to enfold themselves into empire, as the case may be. Because it's humanism. Right. It's it's purely this idea of there being an essence, a core to every human being on the planet that we must, you know, on some level recognize. 
And I think it also goes, I, I thought, I taught Federalist 10 today to my students, so I have it on the brain, but this idea of how to manage, this managerial problem-solving approach to different opinions, you know, how it's the best way of controlling a faction. We don't want to actually hear them as if they're an end in and of their, themselves. We want to control it. And in this sense, I think that what she's doing is so important, but it's also just beyond that. It's more of a methodology than a speci specifically describing homonationalism. It's talking about how do we see that which deviates from whatever norm's been constructed or is performatively constructed as an end in and of itself rather than as veering left, right, up, down, from, center? Sure. Yeah. And, I mean, I think we would not be doing justice to this book if we didn't also point out the connections that Poir's making that we've perhaps left more implicit so far, but to perhaps end by making it more explicit that these processes that we're talking about, right, make queerness white, Right. Yes. And make it exclusively white yes. and make it, um, you know, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Complicit in what um, Poir drawing on Ray Chow calls the ascendancy of whiteness. Right. So perhaps maybe we can really end now for sure with one more Poir quote. Um, this is on page 15 to 16. Queer secularity and queer transgressive subjecthood in general is also underpinned by a powerful conviction that religious and racial communities are more homophobic than white mainstream queer communities are racist. Right, if we continue, skip a few sentences. By implication, a critique of homophobia within one's home community is deemed more pressing and should take precedence over a critique of racism within mainstream queer communities. Well, I'm there. We're back, and it's time for the world's favorite segment. Now, Rachel, you have not yet been here for the naming of this segment. This segment is now called My Tumblr Friend from Canada. So this is from, and fittingly enough, our first question comes from an anonymous Tumblr follower of mine. I don't know if they're from Canada or not, sorry. Um, and so this is their question. I'm looking to apply to political theory PhD programs but still do interdisciplinary work. Some programs ask for a background in the Western political theory canon, which I don't have. My BA is in women's, genders and se women's gender and sexuality studies. I am willing to get that background before entering programs. Thoughts on whether I should still apply? Yes. 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 Please do. It's actually very refreshing that there's people from various uh, disciplinary backgrounds and with different degrees or of engagement or interest in the Western canon and all the things that can and can't mean. So mm -hmm. apply. Definitely. I mean, there's, you know, part of it's going to be about choosing the right programs to apply to, right? Because some, you know, may say they want, you know, a background in the canon, right? But that's going to be a firmer requirement than others, right? And it's really a matter of, you know, in your personal statement, how can you connect your background in women, gender, and sexuality studies with a sort of research agenda or project or idea that you want to pursue that is best suited to pursue in a political theory program, which I'm sure you as a person who did their background in WGS and then wants to go do political theory is very well suited to do. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, so many programs, like I was just talking to someone here um, at a recent colloquium meeting at the GC, um, who is going into uh, political theory at U Chicago, um, studying a rent? And you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, 
if you can put in conversation or engage with folks within, you know, women's and, and, and women and gender studies uh, within, you know, an otherwise very masculine kind Absolutely. of male dominated field of, of, of theory, um, you know, go for it and look at those programs and specifically the kinds of thinkers that, um, you know, the professors are interested in. And you find that, you know, I, I think more overwhelmingly people are more interested in contemporary thinkers like modern thinkers and putting those thinkers in conversation with, with new criticisms. They're less likely than, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years ago to, you know, let's pick on you, Chicago, for example, uh, <laughs> since I just brought that up, for example, why not? Totally an exception. You know, look, you know, Leo Strauss was, was very dominant in the political theory realm at that school, but yeah. now um, it is very much more open to criticisms and simultaneously engagements with gender-related, um, you know, notions and engagements and investments. So I think I would follow John's perspective. Yes, apply but look at you know what the professors in this department or these departments are are doing. Not only the professors, also the students. Students, right? Con- yes. Find and contact some grad students who are there because they'll get a sense, right? Because you know, I mean, the people on my committee are not you know are not doing the same thing. They're doing these kinds of things that you're talking about, right? But the people I've put together for my committee are very you know encouraging mm-hmm. and helpful in my particular project that does seek to connect you know canonical political theorists with affect theory and you know and with feminist theory as well. So right, it's also a matter of what are the students doing, and they'll know whether there's room for this kind of interdisciplinary work or not. Yes. More so to some extent than the faculty will. Yeah, I concur. All right, we have one more question that I can find real quick. All right, this question is from Phil, who is from Canada, but not my Tumblr friend. Um, (laughs) I recently got accepted to speak on a conference panel. My submission for the conference was roughly 20 pages. Um, For a 10-minute presentation, how do you suggest preparing? Advice for choosing what to use, what to cut from the paper, how to know if I have enough or too little prepared, and any other tips? I think it depends on the theme of the panel and who else is on the panel, but I would say um, cut all details elaborating on each section, and in the short amount of time, you basically have to accept you won't be able to do justice to the roundness of your argument, and you have to basically give a uh, romanticized abstract. No, that's very true. Um, I would follow the tip of, of you know taking out the topic sentences of most of the paragraphs, and placing them in some kind of outline, and then looking at that as your presentation outline, then if you're good at riffing, which I tend to be... I'm not. All right, so I mean, so it depends on your style. I like to riff on, you know, a single sentence or a thought um, that, that is produced from the topic sentence from a paragraph. And so I can talk about it a little bit, a little bit at length, knowing that I have 10 minutes and moving through. Prepare beforehand, obviously, a couple of times. Do it with friends. If you have, you know, obviously on your phone, time yourself. You know, no one on a panel likes anyone who goes over the time limit. Do not go over it. Never go over the time limit. The, you know, the the person in, in charge of that panel is going to, you know, be a taskmaster. So, you know, try at least, or mistress, so try at least on some level you know, to keep yourself within, you know, a nine and a half minute range. And I mean, 
always you can always feel free if your panel chair hasn't told you how long you have you should email them you know a week and a half two weeks in advance if you don't know so you have a specific time frame one other alternative that i have sometimes used and actually recently used at the last conference i present i think that the you know take the topic sentences from a bunch or most of the paragraphs and try to you know as rachel said a romanticized abstract is one way of doing it another way to do it is basically like acknowledge at the start give an overview of your project in like two or three minutes and then say i'm going to skip over a lot of parts of my paper and then really focus in with the rest of your time on one particular section of your paper that's another possibility yes and i think that you know john like hits a perfect target it's you don't have to cover the breadth the entire paper itself because chances are not only has the panel i I hate to sound cynical not only has the panel not read the entirety of your paper nor has the discussant right i will say i have a very very good discussant at abscess all right right. to him so yes i've also had good luck with discussants. you know but i've seen discussants in many yeah discussants in many instances may in fact read your entire paper but most won't so you as uh you know a a mentor of mine in the past has said you know where the bodies are buried. So you give your particular, um, you know, your, your subject matter in a way you hit on all the topics that need to be hit on, right? So, you know, you guide people through this presentation, your paper, the way you see fit. And, you know, the audience themselves need to be guided as a result. So Yeah, so two very quick things, and we will actually be done. Uh, first of all, Phil, I would also suggest that an earlier episode, I would guess it's like maybe episode three or four, but check the archives. Um, we talked a little bit about preparing for a conference and doing a conference yes. presentation and a different framing, but it may also be helpful for you. And second of all, Phil has requested that we plug the conference and I would say, why not? So it's the, uh, techno politics conference, October 24th and 25th at Trent University in Petersburg, Peterborough, Ontario. So if you're in Ontario, I strongly suggest you go to the Technopolitics Commerce at Trent University, and I especially suggest you go see Phil Henderson's paper. I concur. Love you. Bye. All right. So, folks, this was an exciting, rousing, something kind of This was uh, amazing. I love this and podcast. I'm amazed and so happy that Rachel is back with us. I I'm love so you. happy to be here. I love you guys. Always is already podcast. Always already podcast. Ew! You take the like Velveeta-ish parts. Mm.